Welcome to this week's episode of 16 Minutes. I'm Sonal, and this is our show where we talk about the news, what's hype, what's real, and our vantage point in tech. This week, we're talking about the debate or discussion around randomized control trials versus real-world evidence and real-world data that's coming up a lot recently in the context of the coronavirus pandemic. And so to give some quick context before I introduce our A6NZ expert, as you guys know, we've talked about the 21st Century Cares Act on this show. We've actually had the co-bipartisan authors of that act on several years ago. And one of the updates in that is to include data regarding potential benefits or risk of a drug derived from sources other than traditional clinical trials. The FDA covers, as part of its mandate, biologics, drugs, medical devices, and tobacco, which we've also talked about on the show. And they use this kind of data to monitor post-market safety and make regulatory decisions. And then the others who use this type of data besides the FDA are insurance companies and others who might make coverage decisions, people who design decision support for clinical practice, medical product developers who use this to generate innovative new treatment approaches. So what it really boils down to is the trade-off between speed and innovation. So let me introduce our A6NC expert, general partner Vijay Pandey. Vijay, from your vantage point, why does this matter? How are you thinking about this? Is this dichotomy between speed and innovation a false trade-off? You know, I think often this is couched as a trade-off between speed and innovation, but I don't think anybody wants to bring dangerous or ineffective drugs to market very quickly. The real question is, who are we trying to serve and how can we best serve their needs? We really need to start by laying a foundation for just how to think about this. Where I always start is realizing that there's a spectrum of role for drugs, that it really can't be sort of a one-size-fits-all sort of way to think about this. So, you know, for example, let's say you have the case of AIDS or terminally ill cancer patients, people that will literally die if this drug doesn't get to them soon. You know, worrying about toxicity makes sense. We don't want to give anyone poison. But worrying about efficacy while people die is risking lives that would be lost anyways. And so in cases where patients are willing to take it, that makes total sense. On the other extreme of this spectrum, we have to be very careful about drugs that are being given prophylactically very widely. If everybody's going to get a vaccine or if everybody's going to be taking a certain pill for something simple, we want to make sure with very high confidence that's safe and so have a really high bar for toxicity as well as make sure that it has efficacy. Okay, well then let me just go a bit more deeply and then we can talk more about some of the issues playing out right now. So just a quick summary, real-world data includes electronic electronic health records, claims and billings. In fact, we've talked a ton about this on this show. Julie in particular has talked a lot about this data ecosystem. And you and I have also touched on the aspect of wearables as well and where that can come in, although that's also just a tiny sliver of this bigger picture of real-world data. So folks can check out those past episodes. But real-world evidence is the clinical evidence regarding the usage and potential benefits or risks of a medical product derived from analysis of real-world data. And that can be generated by different study designs or analyses, including randomized trials, including large sample trials, pragmatic trials, and observational studies, both prospective and retrospective based on the past. Let's talk really quickly then about this importance of randomness and why this is being framed as a debate between randomized controlled trials versus real-world evidence. The golden rule of everything is that the only way to not have a biased sample is to make sure it is 
randomized. Yeah, it's very appealing to look to real-world data, real-world evidence to either supplement trials or maybe even replace trials. And the argument goes something like this, which is that if this drug is being given to a million people, that's so many more people than you'd ever have in a clinical trial. You'd never be able to run a trial that way. Uh, and if you think about it statistically, that many more people is going to be really critically important for us to really understand the value of this drug. The problem with this thinking is that in the end, you want to make sure that you have an unbiased sample. And so the challenge for these real-world evidence approaches is, can we really make sure that we have something unbiased? Luckily, these sort of more evidence-based approaches still naturally fit within the clinical trial framework. Even a clinical trial isn't perfectly random. I think really, I think part of the real benefit of a clinical trial is the sort of clear discernment of causality that um, we have a patient, we give them a drug or a placebo, double blind, and then we see what happens. Versus I think people always worry about sort of the confoundment of correlation and causation, that certainly correlation doesn't mean causation. Right. I think what's actually changed in, especially very much in the way people handle things statistically, is that there actually are ways to handle causation, that you don't need to do it through an RCT. You could do it through other methods. There are statistical approaches to address this. But I think the caveat there is, again, it's really kind of the same problem. One has to make sure that you're designing your statistical method appropriately. Is it powered appropriately? And have you made the right decisions for who's in and who's out? Right. And so you referenced RCT, which is randomized clinical trial. Can you then talk to me more about the trade-offs and the role of the statistics in that process? Yeah, so part of the confounding nature here is that people feel like clinical trials are just some added regulatory burden that's thrown on top. For example, if there was like something that's obvious, why would you need a clinical trial? So, you know, much like we were talking about spectrum of drugs and drug uses, there's a spectrum of trials to think about. Like on mm. one end, there's a case where the effect is very clear. The difference between taking the drug and not taking the drug is life or death, or the measurement is like zero to a hundred with an error of plus or minus one or something like that. When the effect size is so dramatic, then you don't need a lot of samples in the statistical sense, the term samples, but in here, the real life sense, these are people. You don't need many people to demonstrate this effect. If the effect is really, really large, you don't need a very large clinical trial. You don't need very much evidence. The statistics is very clear. In some cases, for a first-generation drug, for instance, like a statin could have a pretty material change to the amount of cholesterol that people have in their body. On the other hand, maybe a second generation drug is a more modest improvement over the first generation. And because of that, one needs much more statistics to be able to demonstrate that the second generation drug is valuable. Where people often get hung up is that most of the trials that we see and the trials that we associate with expense are trials where the effect size is relatively small. So if the size is small, you're going to need a lot of statistics to be able to really demonstrate that there is an effect there. And that means a lot of patients, a lot of time, a lot of expense. Given the coronavirus pandemic, where do data come into this? Yeah, I mean, we can talk about statistics and all this abstract nature of things, but Corona is a real problem, which is obviously we're right in the middle of right now. And so to that end, to ask for a given drug what the bar should be. So for instance, if you're talking about a patient that has acute respiratory syndrome, which is this patient can't breathe or is having extreme problem breathing, naturally, if you can't breathe, you can't live. In this case, you can make an argument that the bar should be lower for efficacy, akin to the way we think about cancer patients. So we think about AIDS patients, 
On the other hand, if we're talking about the whole world taking a drug prophylactically because they're worried about getting COVID, but they have no symptoms, I would expect the bar to be very high there. So here is where even small effects really become important if it's going to be given very broadly. There's this question for where to set the statistical evidence for efficacy. And in the end, we can have this high philosophy that we'll use statistics, but there still is an arbitrary question, which is what is the level of statistical significance we're going to hold ourselves to? We don't have time to talk about the p-value crisis and statistical significance crisis in the world of scientific publishing, but there's like a whole broader palette against which this whole thing is playing out. Oh, absolutely. P is for probability. You set a p-value to provide evidence and the the null hypothesis. And so you can set it at like, you know, P less than 0.05. You can set it at 0.01 if you're being rigorous. P under 0.10 if you want to kind of loosen it up a bit. So there's so many different... What's your perspective in that context? You've been an academic, a practitioner, a founder. You're coming from multiple vantage points here. Having been a professor at Stanford, how do you think about the statistical side of this debate playing out? Well, this is a fun discussion because Fisher, you know, who invented the p-value, yes. never intended for it to be used in this fashion. And actually, typically, this is an abuse because if you go to sort of any statistical measure, you would never make decisions based on this because you have all these other issues, these uh, multiple hypothesis correctors and all these things. There is a very strong theory, and my favorite is a Bayesian theory for evidence. And typically, this is a log odds ratio or Bayes ratio. And it goes a little bit more like who's going to win the Super Bowl next year? People have odds. And it both is intuitive to people and is statistically more rigorous. The problem for p-values is both some nerdy mechanical problems, but then also what you're talking about, which is where to set the criteria. You know, it's funny because you mentioned that 0.01 is being rigorous. In physics, that would never be considered to be rigorous. You know, when you find the Higgs boson, it's, I think, one out of a million. That's great. I come from psychology, which, by the way, is where a lot of these statistical methods were initially derived precisely because they had very small ends to work with. And now that's changed in this modern world of data. Yes. I think all this shows you is that we can get nerdy with the math, but statistics has to be combined with some sense for how to arbitrate how significant are you going to make something. And you have to look at the big, big picture. What is the application we're doing here? And really, what is the right use? Where this comes into the current discussion is that people are fighting. You could very grossly put people into two camps, like the pro-RCT camp, a randomized clinical trials RCT camp, or the pro-real-world evidence camp, the pro-RWE camp. Ironically, this fight mirrors classic problems in statistics and machine learning, you know, the so-called trade-off between precision and bias. Ah, interesting. In RWE, we have a lot of data points. So you can have something that's very precise, but maybe with bias because of who's taking this data, who's getting this, and so on. For RCTs, you hope to be able to design it to minimize bias, but now you take on an issue of precision. Again, luckily, people have thought about this very deeply, very extensively. This is not something that we have to sort of figure out anew on Twitter. And often, you know, people resolve this by asking again for how is this intended to be used? And especially if this is intended to be used to be generalized to other problems, then we want to be really careful with bias. And we can actually give up a bit on precision to avoid the bias. Where really this works 
And I think this is the natural resolution to this is where we combine the two, where you have some bar for RCTs for demonstrating efficacy. It doesn't have to be a ridiculously high bar and frankly can't be due to the financial and time limits of RCTs. And that's where real world evidence not only can come in, but it kind of has to come in. That in the end, we're in the real world, we have to pay for things, we have to see which drug do we give. You can make the argument that you just want the FDA to make sure that things are not toxic. And Setting the bar appropriately for toxicity. If it's a headache drug, super high bar. If it's a cancer drug for terminal patients, maybe relaxing that a little bit. But the FDA worries about toxicity. And then you let the payers handle reimbursement for efficacy. You know, the fact is that's kind of happening already, that payers will not pay a huge amount for, let's say, a second generation drug if it is a small effect over the first generation. The payers are looking at real world data. They're making these assessments themselves because they got to decide whether this drug is going to help patients and be worth the money. So that's happening anyways. And so in some sense, we can have it both ways. We can have a clinical trial to establish some foundation, but real world evidence at large gen later to decide whether it really makes sense to be giving this to patients. Well, I love that because basically what you're saying is that let the regulators worry about toxicity, but in practice, let the payers worry about efficacy because that's actually already playing out in practice and their incentives are probably more aligned in that context as well. Yeah, I think that's true with maybe some expectations for efficacy, but I think you don't have to have a ridiculously high p-value bar, enough to have some evidence. It probably still makes sense that uh, we'd want to have some sense that this works. Just otherwise, how would you know as a payer whether you should even start prescribing this drug? Because the payers themselves probably wouldn't start prescribing it without any evidence. And so maybe just enough that they can feel that there's a reason, and for doctors to feel confident that there's a reason to give this to the patients, that would be improvement over the current standard care. And then the data can tell us from there. So one last question then, where does the FDA potentially evolving or not evolving here? Like, how does that play out into this? Because that's really why it's in the news right now in particular. The FDA is this interesting sort of policy slash political place. It was only in the 60s when they shifted to actually even requiring tests for efficacy. And that was largely a reaction to the thalidomide crisis. And so due to a public outcry about thalidomide and the horrible, nasty effects there. It led to deformed babies. Yeah. So that led to this Keith Hauer Harris amendment to have the FDA do efficacy. Now, the irony is that the outcry about thalidomide wasn't about its efficacy, it was about its toxicity. You know, we actually cared about the misformed babies more than I think it was meant to provide more comfort to pregnant women. It wasn't only until the 60s that we were even testing for efficacy because of this outcry about thalidomide. And then later in the 80s, there's another outcry due to activists on the other side saying the FDA is being too strict and saying that the FDA, by requiring efficacy, is keeping drugs out of patients that are about to die. Ah, this was during the AIDS pandemic. Yes. Yeah, so once outcry in the 60s leads to greater efficacy, outcries in the 80s leads to sort of a lowering of the bar, and we have to find a nuance between the two, and that not giving drugs to terminal patients it can be a death sentence in its own right. One of the challenges, if you are in the FDA, is that you have to constantly be reacting to these crises on either direction and trying to come up with a as reasoned approach as you can to find the difficult middle between these two confounding areas. I think what we're going to start to see is for patients where, let's say late stage cancer patients or so on, the bar for efficacy will get lower and lower and lower. There'll be a reasonably high bar for toxicity. And then hopefully you can get into patients and then we'll see from there. Where do technology companies and technology players come in here? 
So technology companies have a very natural role in a couple different places. Most people would look first to the real world evidence place because RWE is data and statistics and causality and machine learning and all those things that can have such a big impact. So that's the obvious place for tech companies. And there are tech companies that have been around for many years that are working there. The less obvious place actually would even be in RCTs, where for clinical trials, you can imagine clinical trials themselves are just huge logistical nightmares about recruiting patients, about finding the right patients and patient yeah. matching. It's both sort of a marketplace networky kind of problem as well as a logistical problem. So it has aspects of eBay-ish and Amazon-ish to unfortunately oversimplify it. And these are things that tech companies that are great could have a huge impact. And in this place for something like a clinical trial, for these large ones, if you could decrease the cost by 10% or the time by 10%, this could be hundreds of millions of dollars. It could be you know millions of patient lives. It's something where it's very, very meaningful. So to be very clear, none of this is to say that randomized clinical trials aren't important. In fact, they're incredibly important. But you're also just pointing out that there's a spectrum and context that matters when it comes to thinking about when to relax certain strictures given the size, the effect, the terminalness of the patient, the severity, other contextual factors. So VJ, bottom yep. line it for me, how do you think about this in the context of what's going on right now and just more broadly? I mean, we can think of this as a statistics problem, but it's really statistics combined with policy because statistics is really only the math and can tell us how significant something is, but can't tell us how significant should something be before we give it to patients. Statistics is just a ruler. It's a measurement of how significant something is. And then we have to use our ethical decisions to decide what to do with that measurement. That's a policy question and an ethical question. We need to be thinking about the patient first. And the RCT is really just a sort of a surrogate for the statistics is just a means to serve those ends. And it has to be not sort of one size fits all, but to be put in the context of the patients getting it and what their, their needs are. Thank you so much for joining this segment of 16 Minutes. Yeah, thank you.